When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois. All right, coming down in three, two. It's another edition of the UNLV All Access Podcast. Caleb Herring is here, former UNLV quarterback, and no longer the last quarterback. So sad to announce it. No longer (laughs) the last quarterback to take the Rebels to a bowl game. How does that feel? Does that sting? It it feels good. It's one of those things where that was the one that I'm like, I don't want that one. I like there's plenty of stuff that you want to achieve and have your name next to it, but that one is like, could somebody please knock that one off? Because it almost, to me, honestly, felt like a, a joke against UNLV. You know, like it's like a slight against the university and the football program, which was like, that's that's rare. Winning is that rare around UNLV that you couldn't even get to bowl game since you did it, and it was just like. All right, the the season was special because of that. I get it for the team purposes, but individually, I was like, I don't, I don't want that to be what I'm known for. I want that to be kind of a, a a really just something that people are trying to get past as quick as possible. But it is what it is. You know, people have 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 made that kind of my claim to fame in Las Vegas, and it was fun while it lasted, but it's over. And I I really have no bitter feelings about it. I'm glad. I'm glad it's over. So be honest. Uh, during the waning moments when they kick the field goal, then it's official. They get a sixth win. 
and then maybe some of your analysis or when Russ is screaming and yelling on the radio side, did you feel it at all? Did you, did you have to take a gulp uh, that they accomplished this? And now for people listening who might not be uh, UNLV fans or not familiar with UNLV history, um, this might sound ridiculous, but when you haven't made a bowl game in 10 years and you really haven't made many bowl games in the history of the program, it does mean a lot to finally cross that threshold. It, it absolutely does. It's, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay the accomplishment at all. I did have a moment where I'm sitting there listening to the fans cheer. It's a comeback game. So it, they were kind of up against it for a lot of, of that ball game. So it, it did feel like, Oh, is the pressure getting into them? Are we going to have a, a lapse? Is it not going to happen this time? Is, is that what's happening here? Um, and then it also felt like, uh, that moment when it was like, okay, they got it. When the, the field goal finally went through, there was that moment of like, what does this mean? What is this almost like uncharted territory for, for me, for fans, it was like, okay, we're both eligible with so much of the season left, right? Like, like what, what, what do we do now? It wasn't, but I think the answer came shortly after coach Odom and the players were like, Hey, we got bigger goals in mind. We want to, uh, we, we want to compete for championships. And realistically that, became where my focus shifted it's like okay look across the conference now Where, where's everybody else at what's everybody else doing uh what are the chances of that being you know the realistic goal and we we talked about it in recent weeks it was like hey there's a path where you can realistically say that the rebels are in contention for the top of the conference and it's like that is where my mind went like yes you got to boy eligibility the nerves of that the uh the anticipation of that are gone what now and then the what now immediately was like hey the Mountain West is out there. Like there, there's teams at the top and UNLV is one of them. And if you keep going the way you're going, you keep doing the right things. And uh, this team could end up making this season even more special than 2013 was and going above and beyond the uh, desired bowl game and, and really being in, in contention for the conference championship. So to go back to the original question about, you know, getting worked up or anything, um, it's funny, last year on my local radio show, we had talked to Darren Millard, who's worked all over hockey and has been with the Golden Knights for a few years. And he said uh, before the Knights won, if they won, that he might get a little emotional. And we were like, come on. I, you know, what? I got to admit, because um, I've watched so much frustrating football over the years, and it's not just UNLV. I've been, you know, in a, an official capacity around UNLV for whatever it is now, six or seven years. But I also root for a college football team that, almost has had not has not had a great time over the years. Um, and when Matt never was doing the call on TV and I was doing the TV call, there was a second where I had to like collect myself. Cause I was like, my God, that was really freaking cool. What just happened? A dramatic comeback. And like the, the unbelievable just happened. I mean, I, I don't know how many people have predicted seven games in, they're going to get to the six, the six win mark to qualify for a ball. I mean, you, you get your hopes up every year when they're sitting there at like four wins and they let you down so many times the kids get let down. Um, and I've seen their emotion. It, it sucks. So anyway, all that said, I do want to play the end of the game on the TV side because I thought Matt really did a good job. And I, like I went on a little rant. I could if we had more time, I could have gone on and started telling stories of like 40 different guys. But I held it together. But I, I was really fired up after the game. Jose Pizano with a chance to win the game from 28 yards. Penalty on the play, but the kick is good. There is a flag on the field of the defensive backfield. Might be on Colorado State. It is on Colorado State. Penalty declined. Illegal substitution. 12 men on defense. Penalty is declined. Kick is good. See in the game. 
The Rams had 12 men on the field and still couldn't block the kick. Jose Pizano sets a UNLV record and ties a Mountain West record with six field goal mates in a game. And in a game that has been unlike any other this season for UNLV, the Rebels win on homecoming. And they are bowl eligible for the first time since 2013. So many crazy storylines. If you told someone before the season, new staff, 55 new players. Oh, this team would be bowl eligible seven games into the season. What? You're crazy. They are. They are. What a difference the new staff has made. The holdovers, 40-plus for this Rebel team from the last two eras, have been a building block. Some of the newcomers, like Pisano, have been incredible. Ricky White has rebounded his career this year. They lost their starting quarterback. The backup goes in and just leads him again down the field to a win. And then Jacob De Jesus makes the big catch. A few months ago, Jacob's like, I think I'm done playing college football. I have no offers. How did you go? And he just did that. What a win, a close win, a test. Congrats to all these guys. That's that's incredible. What a job. There's so many cool stories uh, that we could tell. Um, and the other thing that gets me is, like, how fast this has happened. I'm like, I'm still in shock. I'm like, I, I expected upper trajectory. I expected, I think we had both talked about it, you know, six wins. You know, get, get a little improvement over last year, which certainly could have been a bowl season. But um, they've overcome adversity and the blending in of the new guys, the old guys who stuck around. You know, they get it. It just feels like an incredible culture change, which, you know, from you know, from being around UNLV for all these years and you played. I mean, that's the biggest thing. Aside from getting the Jimmys and Joes, you got to get people to believe. And the culture change is just nuts. I think one of the things that I've noticed is this team doesn't just play for the accomplishment of winning. They legitimately, you see it on the field, the way they celebrate, they play for each other, for for the next man next to them, for their coaches, uh, for their teammates, the embraces, the hugs, and Paloma did a great job. Paloma Villacano with Box 5, she did a great job on social media, and she covered some of this, and she mentioned it on Twitter, so I'll give her a shout-out on that. But she was down there filming all of the embraces, whether it was Coach Odom, the players, there was a moment when Mayava and Jackson Woodard who are both kind of coming into their own uh, Jackson as a, as a transfer in and the redshirt freshman, Jay Maaba, they had an embrace like a, a, and I felt the embrace of two players who are on opposite sides of the ball, but you can see the team camaraderie, like no other in that embrace. And it was like, that's, that's it. That's the it factor that a lot of teams uh, that are talented don't have uh, where they play for the man next to them truly. And they, you can see that you can't fake that kind of reaction from the players and, and the way they reacted with their coaches it was really awesome to watch from the press box, from uh, from where I sat. There's no question. And all week, I think the Rebels coaches and players downplayed the significance of getting to six, like as if it was not their, their main priority. It was clear the way they celebrated, the way the emotions poured out of them, that that was big for them. They were fully aware of what that meant, um, and they were happy to be the ones to do it in front of their home crowd. I, I don't think you could have. You know, the emotions of, a, of being a nail biter. I mean, you, you you obviously as a coach don't want the stress of being a close game, but the emotions that come out because you won and because you came out on top of that game make it even sweeter. Um, I'm going to tell a story too, not just for the people on the field. Uh, my son and my family were in attendance. They got to come to this game. My mom was in attendance. And my son has been to at least two Rebel games um, every year uh, that he's been 
of age to go. He's he's nine now. And I've taken the approach with him not to force football on him, right? I don't want him to come up through my shadow. My wife texts me as the game's ending, and she said that my son, Isaiah, grabbed her and hugged her and was jumping up and down saying, we won, we won, we won. <laughs> and I would like, I got emotional because I'm like, this is the kind of thing that happens with football where you get that moment, that spark of interest where you're like, I want to do that. I want to be a part of that. So when I got home that night, he goes, dad, I want to be a college quarterback when I grow up. And I'm like, yes, yes, thank you. Now let's go play football. Let's go run routes. Let's do it. Let's do the whole thing. But because of that atmosphere, that that it sparked the interest in football for him like nothing else has, and being a part of that, and he's you know distant from football. Imagine how the guys who are out you out there sweating and and bleeding for the game, how they felt, and the emotions came out, and it was awesome as a spectator to watch. And happy for the team, happy for these guys, happy for Las Vegas that uh, they finally get to see winning at the college football level. It, it's been great, it's been fun, and hopefully it keeps going. Yeah, it's a great payoff for the new guys who've come in. You know, Jackson Woodard wasn't playing in Arkansas, and now he's a leader of the defense. He had a monster game. Obviously, Pisano was a good player, but he was playing at FCS level. Um, these running backs, I mean, you think about it. Vincent Davis, solid player, but was never the go-to guy at Pitt. Uh, he's a big part of the team. William and Mary, right? William and Mary. Donovan Lester, never the lead back there. And now he's developing as one of the go-to guys. I mean, there's just too many good stories to tell. And then you go back the other way, which is, all the way back to guys like Naki Vahina, who came in with Sanchez. Uh, you go with a guy like Tiger Shanks, um, Amani Trig Wright. Tiger's been here four years. Amani Trig Wright, I think, has been here like 10. Uh, you know, those guys went through the, the COVID season. They went through last year, which was, you know, just really rough at the end of the season, losing streak after Doug Brumfield goes down. So there, there's so many stories to tell. It's it's really cool the way this is has turned out. Um, and there were a lot of elements in the game I think we could build off of because I do want to get to the conference race because I never thought we'd be talking about actually competing for a conference title. But I think you can believe, and I'm very cynical on stuff like this, and I'm always kind of protective of overhyping expectations. But let's talk about some of the key things in the, the Colorado State game. You and I had a chance at the half to briefly talk about what was happening on defense. And Colorado State, not a running team, was just gashing UNLV up until the break, and then they came out in the second half, and I could see more guys in the box. I could see different looks, um, and the run game sort of slowed down. So what did you see in the first and the second half in terms of playing much better defense, which, again, points to one of the really good things this season. This staff, I think, has been consistently good with their halftime adjustments. I think what we saw was the the, the game plan sort of uh it was it was a chess match i think between coaches i think coming into the game colorado state was the number one passing offense in mount west they were highly unbalanced let's say as far as their run pass ratio and what they were trying to do from an offensive standpoint the quick screens the shallow crosses those are things that require interior presence to stop as far as getting out to the screens uh tracking shallow crosses across the field, making sure you're in good drops as linebackers. I think the focus for the Rebels coming in was to take that away. That was num dimension number one um, that they wanted to take away. Rightfully so. There's no issue with that being the game plan. I think what Colorado State and Jay Norvell did a great job with after their first three and out, after their first set of downs, and they're like, okay, wait a minute. This is what they're giving us. They've got four or five guys in the box. We've got to try to run the ball. We've got to attack that. And they did. And I think there was a stretch there where, you know, UNLV defensively 
stuck with their game plan because you know it, it worked for the most part. It, it's not like they Colorado State came out and scored 14 unanswered points, right? They they kind of had a good solid game plan. They had a hold of things, but as Colorado State adjusted and started leaning more heavily on the run, they were able to rip off chunks of yardage that I think uh, maybe were cause for concern as far as the game plan and the way things were going, especially considering that the offense didn't jump out to a lead, right? Like offensively, you know, he struggled out of the gate. So they didn't create any separation to force Colorado state to do anything different. Colorado state had time to figure things out too. Uh, and I think they figured out that we can run, we can attack this light box and run the ball a little bit more effectively in the first half. And they did credit to them for that. Uh, but I think it was just the effort of UNLV to prepare for the shallow crossers, the wide receiver screen game uh, and things of that nature that required the DBs to be DBs and to focus more on the pass attack. That's just what you naturally do preparing for the Rams this year. Uh, we saw that with Colorado State uh, playing Colorado, the way that they were able to march up and down the field using the air attack and things like that all season long. So uh, I think at halftime, one of the things that is underrated when you're talking about halftime adjustments is the IQ of the players. Yes, coaches need to be able to make great adjustments. They need to be able to see what's going on and make those adjustments. They did. I think Coach Odom even alluded to it going into the halftime locker room um, when he's like, they, they've taken advantage of the light box. They, they've done what they're supposed to do. Now we got to do what we're supposed to make some adjustments. Uh, they made the adjustment, but they can only adjust to what the players understand. So if I say, you know, we're going to go from a, a three shade to a two eye, and that's going to be how we stop it. If I say the zone read, we're going to attack the mesh point and not worry about the who got the quarterback, who's got the running back. We're just going to attack the mesh point. If I say things like that and the guys on defense don't understand what the hell I just said, then my halftime adjustments mean nothing. But the fact that the players were immediately able to grasp the the, the adjustments, uh, immediately able to adjust to what their gap control schemes were up front or who was responsible for the quarterback or who was uh, taking on the pulling guard and who was spilling it out to the outside, to the edge rush, those kinds of things you have to understand as players for your coaches to be able to implement the halftime adjustments. And I think it was an example on all levels for head coach, coordinator, assistants to players to understand the necessary adjustments and, and come out in the second half and really in the third quarter pitch a shutout defensively, which allowed for the Rebels with, you know, all five field goals from Pisano in the second half to keep themselves in the game and and fight back into it and for the eventual win. So I wasn't on radio and I didn't get to listen to the halftime interview with uh, Coach and Cordasco, but some of the feedback I got was that Odom just kind of sounded confident in that interview. Like, it's going to be okay. We're down 13-3, but it'll be okay. And then I react to that. But also, Odom said something that was interesting in the uh, postgame presser, and that was he was thinking about what to say going into the locker room at the half, and he said he walked into the locker room and guys were already talking. It was, it was a player-led thing, and I followed it up uh, yesterday with Jackson Turner and Jack Haas, and they both agreed. They said, yeah, even before he came in, there was a lot of conversation. Guys were kind of standing up as leaders. I forget who Jackson said on defense, but they had already started talking about how they didn't play a good first half. And these are the things that needed to be changed. And Haas said again, uncle Trigg, uh, the, you know, the veteran, the money trick, right. He was, you know, he was, he was getting loud. He was, he was driven. Um, that player driven stuff, especially at the half, that's gotta be massive to not have to rely on the coaches to come in and rip your heads off. Yeah, I think it's massive. I think the players need to be invested enough to, to care, to, to change something, to, to recognize, um that they need to be accountable that there's things that they can fix it from an emotional standpoint from a physicality standpoint but also from an x and o standpoint i think when people hear the player-led stuff 
for whatever reason, our natural instinct is to say somebody got up and made an emotional impassioned speech and was like, we need to play harder than this. Right. No, 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 like get get fired up, raw. Like that's what people think. And you know, I'm victim to that too, whenever I hear it. But then I step back and realize that a lot of the player-led engagement that's that's productive is players that are communicating X's and O's, whether it be to their coaches or to each other, what they're seeing from from their lens on the field. I think that's what kind of player-led conversation should look like in a halftime locker room, right? Like there's things like the emotions and playing harder that you can obviously say um, or playing under control or those kind of things you could say in the locker room. But I think the best locker rooms that I've been in at halftime, especially like if you're trailing in halftime or if it's a tight game, are the ones where it's like, hey, coach, I saw this. This is what I'm seeing on this route. When I'm making this read, this is what he's doing. I know we game plan for this, but I'm seeing this safety tilt this way. He's tipping his hand. Whenever I lift my hands up, he's he's giving me cover three. He's rolling in. Uh, he's rolling into the flat instead of uh, into the interior like we anticipated. So that's the adjustment they made. Now this is what we can do. Boom, boom, boom. And the same thing on the defensive side. Like, hey, when they're running those shallow crosses, uh, the, the guy that's going underneath is usually a primary receiver, and that's who we need to glue to. Or I think it'd be better if we stay in man. If I go inside leverage, I can cut some of that stuff off. Or against the run, they're pulling a guard, and he's not attacking the B-gap. He's going outside. He's pulling to get leverage and to seal me so they can bounce to the outside. Those little subtle things that players feel on the field that they can give input. And it, again, comes from player IQ. It's not just like the players are in there yelling at each other. They have to have some context or some content behind what they're saying uh, otherwise, it just becomes a loud locker room. And I think that's what player, what coaches appreciate. When they come in a locker room and they hear players uh, jabbing about uh, the X's and O's and game plan, and it makes sense, and they can give feedback to that, I think that's the player-led conversations that are really productive, especially in a halftime locker room. Yeah, Oda mentioned a moment of player-led activity on the sidelines in-game, and that was the interception on the wide receiver pass that CSU tried to attempt and Odom said he could hear the defensive backs talking about they were kind of tipping their hands with uh, two of the receivers on one side and maybe something was set up uh Jackson Turner when I asked him about it on Monday was a little more humble about kind of sniffing it out but they did they did and that was that was a big play can we talk again about the calmness on a final drive and I gotta tell you I felt when they got the ball back there was 41 seconds left this old British guy kicks a 55-yarder. I still can't believe it. I think I said it on the broadcast. Mark Wallington from UNLV was laughing that I put it this way. I was like, uh, something about um, Jay Norvell kind of put his nuts up on the table and was like, I'm going for it. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put it at a risk. I'm like, 55-yard kick with a 31-year-old kicker? When you've got Tory Horton, you've got this good young quarterback, you've got this awesome tight end, you're running back. I was like, that's crazy. But they made it. But when they got the ball back with 44 seconds, I got to say, you know, there have been years in the past where I've looked out on the field and I'm like, eh, it's not going to happen, right? The protection turned to crap many times. Quarterback didn't have time to throw. I mean, one of the games I think of is Cam Friel's true freshman at Fresno, and they had one final chance at a drive, and it's just like they can't even get the passes off. It's not working. Um, there's a confidence right now, and I, I don't know if everyone else is feeling it, but like, I was not shocked that they went down the field in essentially, what, four or five plays can you? What were you most impressed with with Mayava, and then also the play calling on that final drive to get him all the way down to the ten? Basically, it was what fifty six yards in forty one seconds. I there's a few things, and there's a lot, probably more than a few things, if I really <laughs> dove into it. But there's there's one one of the things that I think was underrated about that when you look back at it 
was the fact that Colorado State was scared to kick it deep. On that final kickoff, they squib kicked it, and it ended up going to Donovan Lester, and he got the ball up to the 39-yard line, I believe it was. Um, number one, that's already a change. I don't think anybody would have ever been afraid to kick it deep to UNLV in the past. That in and of itself was like, this is different. This is, this feels different, right? This is setting up a little different for UNLV. <laughs> um, that was number one. Then number two, as a quarterback, my my favorite thing uh, going into a two-minute drive um, was to get a completion and get an easy completion. I think Coach Marion and the offense did a great job of setting up for an easy completion instantly, the rollout um, to Ricky White, the little hitch. Basically was a smash concept on the outside getting that easy completion on the perimeter. So protection is not an issue just to get the drive started. That's number one. And that kind of comes back to later because I think the play calling kind of built on itself. There's also a segment during this two minute drive or 44 second drive that you see the intentionality behind the coaching. And I say that because there's a third and short in the middle of the field with one timeout left. You're driving down. You know, you need a field goal. You have a decision to make on how you're going to attack getting the first down. The Rebels have been in this situation before against Vanderbilt. Same setup, third and short. You have a timeout left, but you want to get a first down because the clock stops, et cetera, et cetera, in college football. They decide to run it just like they did in Vanderbilt. They get the first down just like they did against Vanderbilt. They line up, and instead of killing it, or burning that timeout, they decide to take a deep shot to who else? Ricky White, just like in Vanderbilt. Ricky White, just like in Vanderbilt, catches the ball on the left sideline, steps out of bounds, and stops the clock. Preserving a timeout, stopping the clock, and moving the ball into field goal range. Now, the only difference between this and Vanderbilt was they had enough play for an extra play after the Ricky White catch. They do it get another completion. That was the exact same play as the play that started to drive off. The play action smashed to the outside. Colorado State now has seen the completion to the underneath receiver, which was Ricky White. They don't want Ricky White to make another catch. So the cornerback jumps the underneath route, opening up the corner for Jacob DeJesus right behind it for a big chunk of yards to make the field goal all but a certainty at the 10-yard line. It couldn't have played out any better if you're UNLV. The situation, the clock management, the execution by the players, I don't want to like overhype it because the offensive player in me, the quarterback in me says that's what you're supposed to do. But I understand full well how difficult it is for all things to fall in sync like that, for everybody to make the right decisions, execute the right way, and end up winning a game down the stretch like that. It was just magnificent execution by the entirety of the offense. Jaden Maiava coaching, the receivers getting open, the offensive line blocking, protection wasn't an issue. It just was a different UNLV football team down the stretch, and it's the reason they came out on the winning edge. Jacob De Jesus, 293 yards of total offense, right? Over 100 yards receiving, massive in the return game. So he's been really good in the return game. Why did things open up in the pass game for him? Well, I think it they had to. And I think Colorado State made a commitment early. It was very apparent that they were going to commit bodies to the run. Um, and we saw the run game struggle a little bit in the first half. Uh, and it was one of those things we've talked about in the past where 
at some point the pass attack was going to be challenged to do the work to be to to carry the load for the offense and i think this was that test it was that game where colorado state was like we know what you can do on the ground we're not going to let you do it um and jacob de jesus plays a position on the on the offense that is similar in nature to the tight ends in the sense that where he attacks more often than not formationally and uh, in the structure of the play action game, he's the one that's going to get the targets. He's the one that's going to be in the mismatch um, or he's the one that they want to catch the ball in space, like on wide receiver screens or things like that, which he caught a few of them um, on like little bubble passes in space just to get seven, eight yards, which really became an extension of the run game um, at points during this game. But he is just the beneficiary. And I think the tight ends also, which Jay Mava has realized um, over the last couple of games, they create mismatches for defenses. And every quarterback will tell you that there are things that you should look for personnel-wise, running backs that can catch the ball out of backfield, and tight ends as your mismatch to create easy passing completions, especially off of play action. So I think that's why the pass game got started. It was out of necessity. They responded. Jacob De Jesus answered the call because he was where they were leaving a void, so to speak. He was the vulnerable point on the defense, and he attacked those those deep outs, those corner outs, um, and the the quick screen game, and, and made the defense pay whenever they left him unaccounted for. You know, the L Access podcast, Steve Cofield, Caleb Herring, Rebels are 6-1. and one. Pretty incredible, and they are right in the middle of a Mountain West Conference title race. I want to shout out a couple of guys who I think are going to be really important moving forward before we get to the game here against Fresno State. One, we should mention, you just hit on the tight ends. Kaleo Ballangai was the tight end in this game. And his big catch was that kind of weird, not Hail Mary thing before the end of the half. But he's starting to emerge. And Barry Odom said on Monday, you know, a lot of what he's doing to get playing time is his role in the run game. And he said he thinks he's going to be a really good player. And size-wise, we know he has it. I mean, his health has been really the biggest hitch against him. I noticed in the game against CSU, it was one of the, the first times recently I'd seen him with nothing on his knees. I think he had a knee sleeve. But generally, he's he's had knee problems, right? So he's always got the big brace on the knee. At times, I've seen him wearing two knee braces. So him fully functional is a big deal, and he could be a weapon in the pass game. And, man, I felt so good for, in such a big spot, Ricky Johnson because Ricky was so down in that UTEP game and then really didn't play a whole lot for the next couple of games. I'm looking play after play as they're holding Tory Horton, who is awesome. He's an NFL player and they held him under 50 yards and Ricky was around him a lot. Ricky made some really physical tackles on the outside. I mean, what a bounce back. It just, you know, it just shows the story of a football season is not written in one game at the beginning or the, the middle of the season. It's got ebbs and flows and players can bounce back and can be inconsistent, but I'm so glad he stuck with it and the staff stuck with him. He played 56 plays. In this game, Cam Oliver played, I think, every play on defense minus like two. Um, Thomas Anderson didn't play a whole lot. The other crazy thing is I looked down. I think Ricky got a little dinged up. I looked down on a big coverage late in the game, and I'm like, is that Quentin Moten? He hasn't played all day, and he's yeah. in there at the end of the game. But on Ricky, talk about what Ricky's been through over the years. And then I, I thought he was done. I thought he was out of the rotation and just would not be able to get back in there. But he's in there against one of the best receiving cores in the Mountain West. And I, I go back with Ricky to his injury last season and the first practice of fall camp, right? The first contact practice. And he like breaks his arm or whatever the injury was. And he's out for most of the season or a big chunk of the beginning of the season. Um, and just to fight back from that, that bit of adversity, because it is uh, adversity for a player to come off of injury. 
uh, came back and worked his way up to, to being one of the guys again on defense. And it was like coming into this offseason of the holdovers, the guys that remain um, on the defensive side, you would have thought, you know, I would, I would have strongly pinned him in. I would not even penciled. I would have pinned him in as a guy that's going to be a starter. Right. And it was much a surprise to a lot of people that have been, you know, fans of Ricky's maybe um, that he wasn't listed as number one and didn't even see a lot of playing time uh, early in the season. But for him to stick with it and to continue to battle, for the battle to be allowed during the season, um, for the ebbs and flows of the season to be allowed for UNLV, I think it is a testament to Ricky to stay in it because that's not easy to like keep your head engaged and to stay in tune with what's going on and to be ready when your number's called. Uh, he, that credit to him. This was a, a, a doozy of a game to have your number called if you're in the secondary, right? Like it's like this is the number one passing team in the conference like this guy this receiving tandem is one of the best in the nation like what what are we talking about here um this is where you're gonna throw me out there but he stepped up he answered to the call he had a, a huge hit on horton early in the game that i think set the tone uh for the secondary and how physical that game was going to be there were several different receivers that got level going across the middle or catching the ball on wide receiver screens because of that physicality, I think for sure there were some gator arms later on in the game where guys were like coming across the middle, second guessing if this was the right decision because of guys like Ricky Johnson not being afraid to be physical with those hits and separating man for ball. I think Jonathan Baldwin had a couple good hits as well. Uh, but everybody in the secondary different times step up. I was with you on the play where Quentin Moten's in, in coverage downfield. It's like, wait a minute, who's that? Like Quentin's back in the game? Like he had a, he had a rough go a couple weeks ago where they were taking shots at him. And it was like you thought maybe his confidence would be shot. But no, he's out there making plays as well. But Ricky Johnson is – I think I look at case studies across college football since my own story and my own uh, trials and uh, adversity. I look for guys and how they respond and how they bounce back. And that says a lot about them as people, not just as football players, but as people. For Ricky to, to swallow the adversity, to bounce back and to be ready and, and able to fight and able to compete at a high level when his number was called, it's – that's awesome for a team. That's awesome for a player. Um, and it's there's several other stories that you could tell about guys like that that are stuck with it with UNLV and are now getting some payoff um, in the in the form of winning and getting this bowl game experience now under the belt. That you just you're just happy that they stuck with it because uh, it, it's it's even sweeter to go through that adversity and come out on the other side uh, on top of it. All right, so let's talk about the race, and we'll get to Fresno here in a second. I think legitimately they have a shot here to get through the conference with two losses could be better could be better and they got to take care of business at new mexico which is not going to be easy they're they're starting to feel a little momentum and san jose state has always been a bugaboo they still have talent and no one's going to forget the uh, ass whipping they handed out last year in the middle of the season to unlv but wyoming and fresno are far from perfect and fresno's obviously got some big injuries right now Air Force is one that I fear just because I have to see it before I believe it. They've, they've just gashed UNLV on that fullback dive. But let's talk Fresno. My favorite offense in the league, right? All the crossing patterns, the little receivers. Um, I actually, it's funny. I was talking about, let me, let me get your comment on this. The, I was talking about their field and how they're, when things start going, man, and they start moving quick, and they, especially with Jake Hayner, they did it. But, their field is one of the last fields that has that big crown, mm -hmm. right? And I almost feel like the receivers that are going one or the other, like, know the field. So, you're like, you're starting to tilt the field down, but then the field is also to the side down, and the receivers catch it over the middle, and then they're like, whoa, you know, like down a freaking ski chute. That field is crazy. 
What do you think of their offense? And I'm not just talking about the personnel this year. We'll get to it. I freaking love Tedford's offense because it's not just whipping around the yard with passing. They're also really good running the ball. It's it's balanced. I think that's the thing. It's it's designed to make you play all 53 yards horizontally. That's number one. That's the first thing you notice. And you talk about that crown. I remember playing there and it being a coaching point that there was that crown. So when you throw the ball from the middle of the field to an out route, your ball is always higher. Like it sails. So because the, the field, it's like literally throwing it downhill. You have to be good at doing that. And that's, that's an advantage. I don't care what anybody says and, until you've seen it. Like if you look across the field at the other team, it looks like they're underground. Like you can't see the legs of your opponents on the opposite <laughs> sideline. It's hilarious. But it is, it's a crazy thing that happens when you're playing there. Um, but the offense is designed to make you guard every inch of the field. Uh, and it's not, an offense that is uh, overconfident in the sense that they will take what you give them. If you're allowing for them to run the ball, they'll do it. If you're allowing for them to throw it on the edges, they'll do it. The shallow crosses are always hard to guard. I don't care what defense you're running. It's hard against man. It can beat zone. Uh, They have receivers that have a knack for it. And that's whether they feel man coverage, they keep running through, whether it's uh, they see as a hole in the zone and they know where to sit. It's it's uncanny that guys have the ability to do that, um, and they've had it for a long time under Tedford. And it, it's it's something that I think is a part of the education of football when you when you're talking about his offensive guys, where they have a knack for that that style of offense, and they recruit to it well. They've had guys for years now who complement the system like no other. And Derek Carr was probably the master at running this offense from a quarterback position. If you go into Fresno, Hainer was no joke either. Like they're both really efficient at doing it. I think both are in the NFL, partly because of how this system fit hand in glove with those guys. Uh, it's not been as smooth this year as it has in the past. Obviously, they're dealing with some injuries at the quarterback spot and going to their backup, but it's not like it's bad. It's by no means is it like um, I think everybody would have expected a fall off with Hayner leaving and how consistent he was with the offense, but it hasn't been that bad. Like obviously, they're six and one, uh, could have very easily come into this game undefeated. Um, but they've shown some vulnerability. I think that's what UNLV would have to capitalize. I think possessions are going to be uh, a key. Like whatever team can come away with more possessions is going to be big as far as turnovers or limiting turnovers. And I also think whoever can be more consistent. There's been stretches for Fresno State this season where the offense just couldn't find a rhythm. And it was like they went long stretches without getting a first down or without moving the ball very effectively. And it's like, are they going to come out of this I'd be, against Utah State? If you're looking at it for a game, for an example of that against Utah State, and I know they're dealing with injury to their quarterback, but in that game against Utah State, there was a stretch where Utah State was like, looked like shutting them down defensively. And for all intents and purposes, they had the game in their hands going in offensively with a chance to win the game. Fresno State bowed up and made the the, the big stop on defense, but they they looked vulnerable for large stretches of that game, and um, so they're not as, nearly as efficient, I think, as they used to be. And even then, UNLV was in the game going into the fourth quarter last season. And I think this is a better UNLV team from a team standpoint, from an execution standpoint, uh, down the stretch. And we've seen that on countless yeah. occasions during the season, um, coming out on top in close games. But this game is very much up for grabs. And I know, you know, the odds makers probably look at what UNLV's given up defensively and say uh, that Fresno State will have a good game. But I, I wouldn't bet against it. I still think that the Rebels have every shot to come away with a victory in this game and to still remain in contention for the top spot in the Mountain West. Yeah. There's a lot to break down. First of all, we don't know if Mikey Keene, the starting quarterback, is going to be good to go. Um, 
Tedford was playing it real cool on Monday, saying he and Lavelle Bailey, one of their best linebackers, well, be kind of a game time decision. We won't know until later in the week. Um, there is a difference between Mikey Keene and Fife. I'm not saying Fife is not good, but Mikey Keene was operating at a high level. I mean, I think he had 15 touchdowns and four interceptions. And, you know, he's another one of those guys. This uh, You'd figure with all the crossing routes that the, the short, small quarterbacks, it wouldn't work for them, right, with uh, the height of the linemen. But it worked for Jake Hayner, who was like six foot. Mikey Keene's 5'11". By the way, I should mention, and I mentioned on the radio show, um, Central Florida has this recent history of, of recruiting guys who are like 5'10", 5'11", and they're all freaking awesome. Like Dylan Gabriel went to Oklahoma. He's great. Uh, Mackenzie Milton was a highly uh, touted dude out of Hawaii. He was he was a smallish guy. There's a guy, Castellanos, who's like 5'10", at BC, who's really good. Now Mikey Keene. And I, I saw a lot of chatter the last couple weeks with Central Florida fans who were like, man, we miss Mikey Keene. So if he plays, that brings him up, up another level. This receiving core, is it better than – CSU, because Brooks is great, although he's been slowed down the last couple weeks. They have a couple of Jalens. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, Jalen Gill, who's a transfer from Ohio State and BC. Um, Jalen Moss is a good player, but the, the three leading receivers that I'm mentioning, they all have 34-plus catches, and the three of them have combined for 13 touchdowns. I think when I look at the team and the way that their offense is set up, they are good. I think they're different than the team's that UNLV has struggled with uh, from a defensive standpoint as far as the secondary. I think the strength of this defense is for UNLV is the speed and the reaction time. That being said, I think the, the, the lighter point of the defense is the back end. And if you watch the games, a lot of the big plays in the past game for UNLV have come from the midi, uh, the intermediate, the deep intermediate to the deep shot, where it's like those are the holes. That's where people are finding strength. I don't know that Fresno State is necessarily from this receiver core and their skill set and their their size, obviously. I don't think that they're aiming to take the big shots. I think they'd much rather operate in the mid or in the shallow range, making short receptions, short catches, and taking it for lots of chunk yards after the catch, which I think actually plays into the hands of UNLV defensively. I think they would much rather keep everything in the pass game in front of them and rally to it and make tackles for short minimum completion gains because they figure they're going to help stop the run. So you're going to be in third and longs and they'll let you catch five yard shallow routes and then rally to it and stop you short of the chain. So I, I do think it's talented. I think it's just talent, the receiver core for Fresno state. I think it's talented in a different way than the rebels have, I guess, gone against where the receivers that they face and going back to Hawaii, um, uh, Colorado state had th receivers that were really deep threats or bigger receivers that were deep threats. Uh, even UTEP had some guys that were deep threat shots or, or deep threat candidates. Michigan, of course, had some guys that were going deep off of the play action. So they've been uh, exposed on the deep ball, the 50-50 shots down the field. But I don't think that they are going to feel like this right receiver going, the things that they have as strengths uh, for their, their physical setup. I don't think they're going to be as worried as maybe they were for Hawaii or Colorado State as far as the talent on the other side. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just looking at the PFF stats for the entire season. And from a tackling grade standpoint, the number one and two players on the defense are Jonathan Baldwin and Ricky Johnson. So that shows their strength there. I'm trying to look at other defensive backs. When B.J. Harris plays, and hopefully he can play more in this game, uh, he's he's pretty good as well. So they've been a good tackling team on the edge. And Cam Oliver's up there. So he's, he's good. They, they have good grades. They have good grades from a, a tackling standpoint. Um, by the way, I just mentioned B.J. Harris. What was your reaction on the 
really underthrown ball um, to kind of set up that, that I see you closing your eyes uh, to set up that field goal, the 55 yarder. I freaking went crazy on TV. Not that you don't make the call, but I'm like, this is one of the banes of my existence in football. It is simply rewarding someone for throwing a poor ball when it's underthrown by five yards. And then the receiver tries to bulldoze back over the, the defensive back and the interference is called on the defense. It is just absurd. I think the the officials in football should go kind of with the NBA model as far as charge block. Like you don't always just have to have your feet in perfect position, but you just have to be in legal guarding position. And it's like if you're there and there's contact, oh well, so be it. Throw a better pass. That's how I feel about it. I, I know I know I've probably been the beneficiary of this call at some point in my playing career, but I wouldn't have liked it. I would have I would have acknowledged that yeah, we got away with one there. It, there's similar thing. It, I first of all, I flat out said it wasn't a pass interference. It was a terrible call, and I I said I'll take my fine in the mail if they're fining me for criticizing the officials because I just don't agree with that call 100. <laughs> You're fine. Like, it, it was just it was just You're like not, it was a bad call. I think fine. Yeah, what? I mean it was a joke, but I just I, just, yeah. I said it, that I'm okay with them, you know, being criticized for being a homer. I guess for this, yeah. it was not a pass interference. <laughs> and I, I said it, I said the, the biggest problem with the call that I had was early in the game, and it just so happened this was against UNLV, Seneca McKee was getting mauled on his routes across the middle. He ran a couple of slants where the guy's all over his back, and they're like, oh, nope, clean. It's good to go. And I'm fine if that's clean and good to go. Yeah, but the consistent. number one thing that coaches and players argue about with refs is to be consistent. If that's what you're establishing as okay contact, then when I pitter-pat with a guy as he's fighting back for the ball, don't make the call. That's one part of it that annoyed me. The second part is where the flag comes from. I, there's there's oh zone, yeah there's yeah. zones on a field that officials are responsible for there's a ref who has that play he has that that's it in his zone on the field where he's supposed to be paying attention to the flag coming late and from across the field is a problem to me i don't and i i just don't understand even if you threw a flag from there and you saw something from your angle when you get together and have a discussion with the guy who it's his call if he says i saw nothing i got nothing then it's nothing, okay? I So for me, it baffles me that that can happen. I disagree with the call. I know there's coach talk that's going to happen. Like, we can't do it. We can't be penalized for it. But that was BS. That was like a critical juncture in the game where a petty flag really could have changed the outcome. UNLV bounced back. They overcame in the grand scheme of things. But they don't get a last-minute field goal. They win that game prior to that. With I think that was third down. I want to say it was third and 12 or something like that where they took a shot deep. Maybe I'm wrong on that part of it, but it kept the drive alive. It moved the ball in a, a chunk yards of field when the defense actually did everything right and the offense didn't execute well. You got bailed out by a penalty. That's just the way it goes. But I was frustrated. I was upset, and I'm glad that the, the results of the game didn't make that something that I lingered on all night because I probably would have lost slip over it if, yeah, if I got trouble was going to come over the win. I got so angry on that. I started lecturing CFU fans. I'm like, if you think that's pass interference, then you're a terrible fan. Because you should root for fair officiating across the board because guess what? That play is going to happen to you later in the season, and you better think back how happy yep. you were when you were the beneficiary because you're going to get screwed down the road. I, I just I hate that one. Um, before we give predictions, I want to go back to the last couple of years. UNLV has competed really well with Fresno. And, in fact, last year's game, the negatives in that game were tackling because they gave up a 33-yard touchdown. I was standing like four feet away from Moreno Cropper 
when someone took a bad angle on a fourth down at the 30, it was, they had to get to the 33 or it was at the, whatever it was. The catch was made at the 33, bad angle, goodbye. Opposite side of the field, even further down the field, same thing. Missed tackle, Moreno Cropper ran like a 3-8, um, and he killed him his whole career. He got a 65-yarder. They're a little more solid in tackling. They win that game. And the reason they were going to win that game is this Fresno State team so far is better against the run, but I also I question the quality of competition in terms of the run game. They are 25th in the country against the run, which is pretty good. UNLV absolutely smacked them right in the face last year at Allegiant, and a lot of it was Aiden Robbins, but I will argue now that the combination of these backs is actually more is more productive and better than Aiden Robbins, and they smoked them last year. They ran for 221 uh, last week in that Utah State game. I think, I think Utah State ran for 240. Um, so to me, that's the key to the game. And I know this is always, you know, with a running team, of course, it's the key to the game, Cofield. No, it really is. Because you want to keep Fresno off the field. You want to limit their explosiveness by not allowing them to have the ball. And I do believe they can run the ball against this Fresno team and pull off this upset. I won't pick the upset. I will pick a close loss. And I, I thought Colorado State and UNLV would go into the 60s. I think this has the makings of a game that could go like high 50. So I guess I'll go, you know, 30, 27 Fresno. But everything is there right now with the mindset of this team, the run game, as you said, uh, better design in terms of athleticism and tackling. They can win this game. I am going to say I'm going to go with the upset. And I that's a homer maybe. But I think the Colorado State game, and the way that the Rebels won it, there's an intangible thing about that that I think benefits the Rebels with Fresno State coming off of a bye. I think a lot of people in Fresno probably look at that game against Colorado State and say, huh, this team ain't that strong. They ain't that good. We got a bye week. We're rested up. We may be getting our starter back. There's maybe a potential for a lull or some rush coming off of the bye. I think the Rebels were in the first half one block away one non-penalty away from scoring on each of their first drives and if you watch that game and you look back at it they were in third and short three different times that i can just remember off the top of my head that they didn't get a first down to keep the drive alive and when it was either a run play that came up short that was one block away or just a pass incompletion that was the right read the right call and just a bang-bang play with a pass interference or something like that in the first half where it was like, that killed the drive. It resulted in no points. So because of that, I think the Colorado State game ended up being tighter and closer and closely contested. No credit taken away from Colorado State, but I don't, I don't think that that game was a true testing point or true measuring stick of how good UNLV can be. Um, but the second half when they made adjustments and they fought and scraped and clawed their way to a win, I think that gives them a, a momentum in the mental side of it that helps them in this game and makes them come out at the high level for this game. If they jump out on Fresno, I don't think Fresno comes back. I don't think they have the maturity, the fortitude, the senior leadership of a Jake Hayner at quarterback. They have a good quarterback, but I don't think they have a Jake Hayner guy to come back from behind uh, and win it. So there's a shot, and I, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say UNLV wins it 34-31. I think it becomes a high-scoring affair. I think, like I said, possession count comes down to the wire. Whoever possesses the ball more wins the game. But I, my prediction for UNLV is they come 
into what is it Wyoming with one loss. But that's that's the way that's the way I see this shaking. I know that's going out on a limb, but I I I it, this team feels special. I'll 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 admit that I'm wrong on the other side. But I said earlier this season, I think it was after or before the UTEP game, that I said the Rebels are in a position to compete for the conference title. And I said that, you know, back when there were three wins in. And I said it because not just the records or what I saw, but just the way I know the Mountain West to be. There's always a couple of quirky ones down the stretch. And I feel like the Rebels are going to be on the winning side of a couple of those quirky ones that they've lost in recent years. I, I got a hunch. 34-31 Rebels. Important reminders before we get out of here. Uh, UNLVRebels.com slash auctions. Uh, get one of those collectible jerseys that uh, the entire proceed for the game-worn jersey from the game against Colorado State goes to the Comprehensive uh, Cancer Centers of Nevada, Comprehensive Care uh, Cancer Centers of Nevada, um, UNLVRebels.com slash auction. And we're back for another Barry Odom radio show. Show up. It's good to have a good turnout at 215 in Flamingo. It's Parkway Tavern. Two bucks on the Miller Light. Happy Hour goes down right before the show from 3 to 6. And it's a nice little weekly UNLV football party. A uh, lot of good fans and luminaries around the UNLV community are hanging out there. So come on out. Parkway Tavern. Caleb will be there. The coach will be there. I will be there. Flamingo near 215. It starts at 6 o'clock on Wednesday. All right, I'll set up another room. All right, cool. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm -mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.